Hi, this is Dr. Kerry Gillip, host of the film and documentary, Open Your Eyes. Today I have a special guest, Dr. Jim Springham. Jim is a PhD. He's a neurovision uh, scientist. He has been at Harvard. He uh, has done uh, research for the Air Force, and he's currently at the Duke Eye Center, where he conducts a lot of research on carotenoids, which is pigment in the back of the eye, and visual performance and, help, and helping to prevent people from getting macular degeneration. So I just wanna thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. Yeah, you bet, Dr. Gelb, uh, my pleasure. So if you could just give us a little bit the difference between vision and eyesight. What do you, to you, what's the difference? Well, you know, strictly speaking, uh, vision is, you know, a, a pretty, well, it's complex, but it's a fairly simple idea where, you know, you're detecting light. And so when you, you know, talk to, you know, anybody on the street, they'll say, well, vision is, you know, you measure that with an eye chart, but that's actually going a little too far, probably. Uh, you know, vision is just, strictly speaking, detection of light by some organ. And, you know, in our case, of course, we're talking about the eyes. Uh, you know, visual function, uh, by contrast, is a collection of abilities that, that we have uh, that range from detection of fine gray levels, you know, contrast, uh, speed of visual processing, uh, visual acuity, the sharpness of your vision, uh, to name a few. And so it, it gets, the further up, it gets a little more complex. And uh, it's, it's pretty amazing, actually, all of the you know, the, these abilities that we have and that you can measure them all. I, I measure them in my laboratory and, and there's a lot of variability among people. And, you know, what we're finding is that this variability can be accounted for by, uh, largely by lifestyle habits, uh, you know, diet, exercise, these kinds of things actually make a big uh, difference with regard to your, your vision, your eyesight. You know, when I see patients, I'm helping one patient at a time. When you do research, you disseminate that research to the doctors and the doctors could use it on patients. So you're helping millions of patients with your research. Unfortunately, it takes like 17 years be before research that the typical PhD does to be translated to physicians. Why do you think that is? And that's kind of a frustrating, frustrating thing. Yeah, it it is frustrating, Dr. Gelb. I and I, I appreciate you, you know, being on on the side of research. I mean, a lot of a lot of doctors still. I mean, they they pay attention to the research, but it it's hard to break out of you know the tried and true you know stuff that you learn in in medical school or optometry school. Uh, you know, these some of these ideas, uh, research by its nature is is sort of new. Uh, the, and a lot of the ideas that come out of research are fairly new. Science, you know, of course, you want to replicate findings. You want to trust uh, these findings. And we're at that stage now with regard to visual function and, and some of the areas that I work in, including nutrition. We're at the stage now where we're really confident uh, that we have a ton of evidence to support all of these findings. And, and so I think that it takes a long time it's probably best that it, that it takes a long time. I, I'm frustrated because you know, I, I see it in patients that we test and, and you know, folks, I've tested athletes, you mentioned those in the Air Force. Um, you know, we, I've seen it with my own eyes, it, it works. Uh, but uh, but you know, it, it should take some time. Uh, and, and thankfully now we're at the point where it's mature. And, uh, and so yeah, 
it's frustrating, but, but it's probably necessary. We know that it works. We can trust it. It's not something that happened yesterday and somebody's just screaming like a crazy person saying it's going to work. Well, you, you were an athlete and, uh, I'm very interested in athletic performance. You know, I still play softball and, uh, three days a week. My son is a, I have a nine year old who plays baseball and you've done a lot of research to show that we could actually help athletes through their vision. So maybe we should start from the beginning with carotenoids and build up to how we could actually help athletes. Oh, this is, yeah, it, I like that line of, of reasoning here. Um, specifically, I mentioned nutrition as a, as a really a, an aid to vision and, and the brain as well. And the, specifically the nutrition that I'm talking about are they're, they're nutrients that we get from leafy green vegetables. And so you can imagine that, you know, with the average American diet doesn't include a lot of leafy green vegetables. In fact, even on the uh, dozens of studies that I've done, I, I'll get dietary questionnaire data and ask uh, the participants, and many of them are healthy college-age students. Some of them, you know, are, are diseased populations. You know, they have glaucoma or maybe macular degeneration. Nevertheless, we get these, these dietary questionnaires done. And even in those folks that have, uh, you know, seven, eight, 10 servings of fruits and vegetables a day, which is astonishing, that's a lot, right? They don't really eat that much in the way of leafy greens. So, you know, you might be looking at somebody who has a lot of, you know, say apples, pears, tomatoes, something like that. The leafy greens, there are key components in leafy greens. They're, they're carotenoids. And, you know, common carotenoids include the beta carotene. A lot of listeners have probably heard of beta carotene, uh, rich supply in carrots, for instance. But the carotenoids that I'm talking about in leafy greens are lutein and zeaxanthin. Uh, they're, they're special nutrients that get deposited in the back of the eye, uh, right in the center of our vision, right? When you're looking at something, it's passing through these carotenoids. And there are two of the only three, which includes also mesozeaxanthin, uh, two of the three carotenoids that get deposited in the eye, the only ones that do. And they have special functions there. They're antioxidants, so they fight free radicals and oxidative stress, which can damage the retina and it can compromise visual performance. Uh, and they're also yellow colored, so they'll shield the eye against, shield the retina uh, specifically against uh, exposure to short wavelength or blue light, which could potentially damage the retina as well. So they serve a couple of really important functions. There are other functions beyond that physiological, but, but just you know, know that they're incredibly important and that we don't usually get enough in our diet. What we found is that people, by measuring the density of these pigments, in the back of the eye. Those with more uh, are, have healthier eyes. Uh, they are less likely to develop age-related eye disease like macular degeneration. Uh, and really the focus of my work has been visual performance. The higher levels you've got regardless of age, uh, the faster your visual performance, the better your contrast sensitivity, um, the better your visual performance in glare. Uh, so bright lights, oncoming headlights, those kinds of things. And, and when you think about it, all of that applies to athletes. Uh, when you're talking about baseball, you mentioned your son, you know, an ad, aspiring baseball player. Uh, baseball pushes the limits of visual performance in a big way. Uh, speed of visual pr processing is particularly important. And that's not a measure that we typically get in the clinic. 
Uh, I can measure it in my lab here at Duke. Uh, and let me tell you, it's, it varies a lot. So we'll see people who are in their 60s in advanced age with high levels of these carotenoids in their retina, with very fast visual processing. And that feeds into reaction time. Um, you know, it, it feeds into decision-making, prediction of what's going to happen. And, and that impacts everybody, you know, driving on the highway or trying to hit a baseball. You contrast that, a couple of weeks ago, I had a, a Duke student, um, a male, 21 years old, and he had virtually none, no, no, none of these carotenoids in his eye, no density at all. He was slower than that 65-year-old. Um, and you know what? The, a lot of his visual performance was quite low. And this is interesting when you consider that, you know, we would characterize this individual as a young, healthy person. But if you really take a close look at the visual system, I, you know, I couldn't call him healthy. I would say, gosh, you've got some issues. And, uh, and so, you know, we sent him along the way with some supplements to, to help boost that level. And we're, we're going to bring him back in a couple of months to, to see if he's improved. My suspicion is that he will. Well, we could use this as a biomarker actually for health of the whole body because the carotenoids aren't in just the eye. They're in the blood vessels. They're in the brain. If you could expand on that and where else they may be, if it affects the heart, blood pressure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it seems that we were designed as human beings to eat more of these leafy green vegetables, get more of these special nutrients there. They're incredibly uh, potent. Uh, they're, they're great antioxidants. I, me I mentioned that earlier, but they also work on the physiology of the body. And they, they work in tandem with the body's onboard systems to optimize function. Uh, you're right, they get deposited not only in the retina of the eye, uh, in, in a really special spot there, but they also go to really special areas in the brain, uh, areas that are responsible for uh, memory formation, uh, memory access, um, auditory hearing uh, function, and also in the visual part of the brain, in the back of the brain. So if you, you know, sort of pay attention to mother nature and, and you put two and two together, you can kind of connect the dots, these really beneficial nutrients are going to areas in the body, in, including cardiovascular tissue as well, like you alluded to, areas that have the potential for really high uh, metabolic oxidative stress. So they're operating at really high levels, kind of like a finely tuned race car. You need to give it just perfect fuel. Uh, everything has to be balanced just perfectly. And to maintain that balance, the body puts these special nutrients in those tissues. And so, you know, we're, we're seeing the carotenoids, they, they you know, are systemic. They, they flow throughout the body. So they're in the bloodstream. Um, they fight at, you know, oxidative stress there. Uh, there are trials going on where they may actually be finding that you know, one of these special carotenoids uh, helps with arthritis. So any kind of inflammation in the body, uh, by an, acting as an antioxidant, these nutrients can actually reduce inflammation. That's super important when you're talking about neural tissue like the retina or the brain. And given the fact that you know diseases of aging like Alzheimer's disease, largely involve an inflammatory component, you think, well, if you've got these anti-inflammatory nutrients in the brain right there fighting that, you know, progression, the cumulative damage caused by oxidative stress and inflammation, that's optimal. Uh, the, the trouble is, is getting the nutrients into people's bodies. 
you got to eat these things or supplement uh, the nutrients in order for them to get into the right tissues. The body knows what to do with them once you put them in your body, but you, you have to put them in there. It's like one of the songs in our film, Body Knows Best. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, indeed. So can you explain the difference between oxidative stress we're alluding to and inflammation for the people that are listening? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, typically we see uh, one leading to the other. Uh, the primary difference between oxidative stress and inflammation is the involvement of the immune system. So oxidative stress is a process that happens, you know, kind of outside the immune system. Uh, it's, you know, brought on by oxygen molecules that become unstable. And unfortunately, you know, there's a paradox here. We need oxygen to survive, obviously. We breathe it in and the body uses oxidative metabolism to run the show. Uh, unfortunately, oxygen is, is a highly unstable. And so when it loses its electron, it becomes unbalanced. It kind of spins out of control. And these are called free radicals in a general sense. They can damage tissue. Uh, they, they cause this you know, cascade of events that leads to more free radicals. What, what ends up uh, happening is that the, the body recognizes uh, this process as uh, an assault on the body, which, which it is, and it will try to uh, sort of ward that, that area of damage off, the oxidative stress has caused. And that is inflammation, an inflammatory process. And that's totally natural. I mean, that's, that's what the, the body does. The immune system's sort of the top dog in the body. And so with inflammation, just like with a mosquito bite where you get a swollen welt that's brought on by inflammation, trying to keep that potential, you know, microbes, the, the bad guys from, you know, flowing throughout your body, uh, the same thing happens with oxidative stress. So inflammation is a good thing, but to a point. Uh, when it becomes excessive, that's where you've got problems. The body, you know, then spins off into dysfunction uh, and, you know, it manifests as, as disease ultimately. Uh, so if you get chronic inflammation, uh, that's, that's bad news. And that's what we see in terms of eye disease like macular degeneration, uh, dementia, Alzheimer's in the brain. Uh, you get you know, cardiovascular disease as, as all starting basically with oxidative stress and then the subsequent inflammation that occurs afterwards. And what causes inflammation that runs away in our body? What are some of the causes? Well, I mean, a lot of it is simply the fact that we don't keep things under control. Uh, and, and so the oxidative stress I referred to earlier uh, is, you know, a major culprit in this case. The body is designed to use oxidative stress to a point. It'll, it'll use oxidative products and in some cases to, to kill the bad guys. Um, and, and so it, there's a level of it that's necessary. It's when things get out of control uh, that, that we see problems. And normally the body can keep it under control, assuming you've got a decent diet, includes you know, fruits and vegetables. Um, you've got onboard antioxidant systems that help as well. When that's all kept in check and in balance, you have the appropriate amount of inflammation. You have it when you need it. It's that excessive inflammation, that, that uh, cumulative damage over time uh, that where you run into problems. And so what we see in patients, uh, even, even young patients, like I mentioned earlier, in their 20s, supposedly healthy, what we see is uh, the effects of 
chronic inflammation. Uh, it slows things down. It makes the body's physiology slow. It uh, presents as disease. And, and so really we're looking at a state of deficiency in terms of diet for these good nutrients. So what are some lifestyle factors that you recommend people do to prevent this from happening? Well, of course, you know, because a lot of these nutrients are simply diet-based, the body can't make them. Uh, you know, dietary change is, is a major factor. It's, it's the, probably the most important thing outside of quitting smoking, if you smoke. Uh, the most important thing you can do for your health, overall health. Improve your diet. It's easy to say. It's not easy to do. A lot of people get set in their ways, and, and it's, it can be difficult. Um, but there are options. There are choices. You know, you can opt to, you know, incorporate salads, for instance, uh, in your in your diet, uh, as opposed to maybe some other side dish. Um, you know, it, it takes an effort, and you know, you can get enough of these nutrients. Um, for instance, in um, a cup or two, probably two cups of cooked spinach. Uh, a day. If you can do that, you know, and, and, you know, people used to say, well, if you boil your spinach, um, you know, all the nutrients go away, they, they get washed down the drain. It's not true, necessarily. Um, you know, steaming vegetables, cooking them is actually a little better. It, it kind of warps the plant cell walls, makes the nutrients more available. So if you can, you know, if you can do that every day and make that effort, you, you, can, you can make a huge difference in your body. Another thing we're finding in the lab is consistency. So if you can do that consistently five to seven times a week, you're good. I mean, you'll, you'll actually notice things like your joints don't ache as much. Uh, vision in bright light is almost within a month or two noticeably better. Um, you know, things like that. Uh, exercise, of course, we, we are familiar with studies now where you stress the system a little bit through exercise. Uh, even if it's brisk walking for a couple of miles a day, that actually serves to recruit a lot of these healthy nutrients. Uh, some of these nutrients get stored in, in the fat cells on the body. And so when you exercise, of course, you're causing some metabolism of that fat. And, uh, and you're at the same time, you know, making available these nutrients to the body. So it's almost like a, like a supplementation uh, from the stores on your body, which is really cool. Um, lastly, if you really can't or won't, uh, you know, eat vegetables, uh, don't want to exercise or can't for whatever reason, uh, you know, there are supplements available with these uh, special carotenoids that can, that can do a lot of good in the body. Let's go back to baseball. What does it take in the, from the visual system to hit a baseball? Wow. Okay. So again, like I mentioned earlier, hitting a baseball you know, the, hitting the round ball with the round bat, it's, it's probably the most difficult thing that anyone has to do in, in any sport. What it takes, uh, you, you, the average, you know, sort of hitter, uh, you're, you're facing a pitcher, you don't know exactly what's coming. Uh, so there's, there's some prediction uh, based on immediate visual feedback. So there's, there's that prediction, decision-making, you know, speed of visual processing is a big deal. I mentioned more of these nutrients in the eye you've got, uh, the better your chances, the much faster, significantly faster your visual system is. So for instance, we've looked at baseball players who can sort of see the spin of the ball out of the pitcher's hand. That's very, very rare. Maybe one out of a hundred hitters can actually, you know, sort of resolve the spin on the ball. 
that's information that you can use to tell uh, what kind of pitch is coming. All that aside, uh, you've got, you know, roughly four tenths of a second from the time the ball leaves the pitcher's hand to when it hits the catcher's mitt. Obviously, that's very fast. You've got estimate between 0.15 and 0.2 seconds to decide whether or not to swing and kind of how to swing. Are you, are you hitting a low pitch or a high pitch or one that's outside or inside? So there's, there's a lot. Other factors include, well, is it a bright sunny day? I mean, that can actually impact how you pick up the ball out of the pitcher's hand. Um, again, you know, some of my earlier work, in fact, in this area involved the dramatic uh, improvement we see if you've got higher levels of this pigment in the back of your eye uh, and performance in bright light situations, glare, for instance. Um, and so, so there are a lot of factors involved. All of these factors are you know, sort of real world factors. They're factors that we don't really test in the clinic. And, uh, and so, and they're also factors that are helped by this, these natural substances. This isn't a drug. Uh, this isn't some magic bean. Uh, these are just leafy greens and other colored fruits and vegetables uh, that, you know, if you get them in your diet in sufficient quantity, you're going to realize these benefits. So you did studies with baseball players that actually showed that it actually you were able to help them. What was the amount of milligrams and, and what exactly did you use? We've done several studies. Um, you know, I've, I've done a few, you know, on athletes, uh, you know, Air Force personnel, other military personnel, so kind of high level visual demands on these folks. And we found that, you know, the, the levels uh, in terms of supplementation, when, when you do a study, it's typically not a, a feeding study where they're eating the actual food, but to, you know, control for, you know, just the actual dose, uh, you, you give them a, a pill that contains, you know, levels of these nutrients. And, and we found that roughly about 20 to 25 milligrams, it's a, you know, it's a relatively smallish pill, 20 to 25 milligrams of these nutrients uh, is where you start seeing, um, you know, the uh, sort of diminishing returns in terms of deposition in the retina. So, you know, and it, it's equivalent to roughly two bowls of uncooked spinach every day. So it's not a, not a crazy amount, a really high level. Uh, it's reasonable. Uh, but that's where you get, you know, kind of the bang for the buck. And after about three months, you'll see, you know, you start to see noticeable differences, not only in the level in the eye that we measure, but also uh, improvements in, in visual performance in a number of uh, different dimensions. Is it 25 milligrams of lutein, zeaxanthin, and mesozeaxanthin together, or just 25 milligrams of lutein? Well, it's a, it's a combination. Uh, and, you know, as you might imagine, over roughly the 20 years that I've been doing this, uh, you know, there have been different formulations, different combinations. And, you know, what we've arrived at is what looks like about a 10 lutein a two zeaxanthin and a 10 mesozeaxanthin mix, uh, where you get a strongest response in the retina, you get strong response in the blood when you measure it, you know, how it's going up in the blood, and then the corresponding, you know, if you can make it go up in the eye, typically we know it's going up in the brain, uh, it's going up systemically, and you're gonna see these uh, visual performance benefits as well. So the three in combination uh, seem to be you know, where it's at. Uh, again, the 10 lutein, 10 mesozeaxanthin, and 2 zeaxanthin seems to be, I mean, after many trials trying different combos, 
I know, I know us eye doctors, we like to recommend the brand called Maca Health, and some of us recommend uh, a Zia Vision brand. Sure. Uh, so they have the 1010 with the Maca Health. The Zia Vision, I think, has uh, 10 and 10 maybe, uh, but no mesozeaxanthin. Uh, do you think it's necessary? I, I think they're both good products uh, sure. for people that are listening. Uh, do you think it's necessary for if you're really intense in baseball to take two of those pills a day, double up, or do you think one pill is enough? Well, that's a that's a good point. And yeah, and I should clarify that, you know, I mean, I'm an independent researcher. I I you know, I, I can't really get into the the you know the 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 business end of things, but you know, after after testing, you know, many, many different combinations, um, you know, we we've arrived at this 10, 10, 2 as being the best, you're not gonna hurt yourself by taking you know, other you know, mixtures uh, for sure. Uh, that, that I should qualify uh, you know, everything with that. Uh, doubling up is something that I think, you know, I have my parents, for instance, they're in their early 70s. And uh, you know, of course, when you age, you, you worry a little bit about macular degeneration, certainly, uh, you know, among other age-related diseases. And, uh, and they have extremely high uh, macular pigment, you know, of course, you know, I'm their son and they've been doing this for a long time. Um, I've got them taking two of, uh, you know, of the 10-10-2 the formulation. Uh, I think maybe for somebody who's younger, I mentioned earlier, you know, working with military personnel, athletes, one, you know, in that 20 to 25 milligram range is probably sufficient. Um, not going to hurt you taking two. Uh, you, you know, we've done studies on toxicity. Uh, you can't really overdose on these pills. So, I mean, quite literally, don't do this, but quite literally, you could take the whole bottle in one sitting and your skin might turn orange a little bit because it gets into the skin as well, uh, but you, you're not going to hurt yourself doing that. So, so no real worries, but you know, and, We've seen that you know you can go up a little bit faster with more, uh, but you know again diminishing returns as you as you go higher. Great, thank you for that. And now, is there any difference with uh, different sports like tennis or golf uh, that you could say uh, any little nuances to help well, our? Uh, yeah, certainly. Our... I mean, I've I've worked with a couple. I haven't done any studies on tennis players, but I've worked with a couple of uh, tennis players and. One of them, she was a former professional tennis player, and she would struggle, you know, as, you know, tennis, it's hard to appreciate if you watch it on TV, uh, the, the sun shining down, oftentimes it's in the middle of the day, and if it's not, uh, then they've got stadium lights, uh, and they're, you know, obviously bright, uh, illuminating the court. When you look up to hit a serve uh, as a tennis player, you're often looking into directly into the light, the stadium lighting or uh, the sun. And what happens there is that you're temporarily sort of blinded. And then as your listeners, I'm sure, and you have experienced these sort of ghostly after images that, you know, you're, you're basically it's called photo stress. And, and so, you know, for a while you blink your eyes and, and uh, these ghostly images float around for, you know, sometimes even a minute long. She was experiencing this so bad that she'd throw her tennis ball up, hit the ball, and then kind of be blind uh, for the next shot, the return of serve, which, as you might imagine, is not a good thing when you're competing in tennis. 
And, and so what she did, she adapted. She said, well, I'm going to keep one eye closed when I serve and then open that eye when I hit the return of serve, which is better, but it's not ideal. And so I worked with her. Um, she had, you know, become aware of the, of the research and the matter and contacted me. And so we did a supplementation study. Again, not really a study per se, more of a case study in this case. And and uh, built up the macular pigment, she was able to tolerate uh, this glare and also recover significantly faster to where, you know, she, after three months, it was pretty fast. She noted, you know, a major improvement. And so she was able to actually withstand the glare in the beginning, you know, the bright light, and then also, you know, recover from that bleaching effect, the, uh, the after images and, you know, continue on. Because as you might imagine with a single eye, you lose a lot of depth perception and it can be a little disorienting as well. And both of those things you don't want happening when you're playing tennis. I don't know if you remember when her macular pigment started, like a lot of doctors in the field like myself, we test macular pigment. We have an instrument that does that. Uh, what did she start with and what were you able to raise her where she stopped having those symptoms? Yeah, it's a great question. I'm glad you asked because she started at 0.17, uh, which is quite low. Uh, we we measure on average people around 0.35, and and it's a scale that's you know I mean to kind of explain to the audience that the average that we get is uh, 0.35, and that that is actually probably really low. We we really see benefits at around 0.7 or 0.8 in terms of you know prevention of age-related disease visual performance improvement and so you know 0.17 is dramatically low i mean that's approaching zero and so she started quite low so no wonder she struggled so much with the with the bright light uh after three months she was up to 0.4 which is a really strong response a year later 0.8 and so this is she was a strong responder uh which is an important thing so she was Otherwise, I mean, a former pro athlete, you know, very healthy, uh, but just many athletes in my experience, um, they eat macronutrients, you know, fat, carbs, protein. They're looking to, uh, you know, improve musculature and recover from, you know, tearing down those muscles and injuries, stuff like that. Uh, they pay less attention, although they're getting better now, uh, but they traditionally have paid less attention to micronutrients like these vitamins, the special nutrients that we find in leafy greens, for instance, like the macular carotenoids. I'm happy to say my son is like, is 0.87. And we wow. did each eye se separately, and it came out exactly the same. So I know the test was accurate. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that's a great level. So how about you did a lot of work with night vision. So mm -hmm. sometimes athletes have trouble, you know, the weekend warriors, you know, once it starts getting dusk, you know, even if we put their glasses and correct their myopia perfectly, they're still having trouble at dusk. And I know you've worked with the military to see how they did it to help their night vision. Can you speak to that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, a, it's an interesting uh, point. And, and a lot of people, as you know, struggle at, you know, dawn or dusk. It's that transition period. Uh, and, and also they struggle, you know, when, when just generally light is very dim. Uh, you bump into things when you get up to go to the bathroom at night or whatever. Um, it's, it's very interesting because our early studies showed improvements in bright light, uh, glare and the like uh, with higher macular pigment. 
And what we found when we tested, you know, they did this study, and I think it was published in 2015 uh, with, with the Air Force, is that visual improvement, or visual performance, I should say, in low light conditions is greatly improved as well with higher macular pigment. So things like the speed of dark adaptation. So if you, you know, cut the lights, um, how quickly you kind of adapt to the dark, you get used to the dark, uh, that's significantly faster. Um, you know, the ability to uh, detect, you know, fine gradations of change uh, in the visual field, like contrast sensitivity are better uh, with higher macular pigment in low light conditions. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's interesting that these effects run the entire dynamic range of vision from very bright light uh, down to very dim light. And I think what, what we're finding is that, you know, you, you test, uh, these nutrients get deposited, you know, preferentially right in the center of your vision, but we're still finding effects that are in the periphery. So outside of where the nutrients are, and that, that at first that was a little confusing, but I think what we're, what we're seeing is that it's just, you know, these nutrients, this, this improved nutrition is impacting the, the physiology of the entire retina and indeed probably the entire visual system back into the brain. Uh, so we see effects not only centrally when you're looking right at something, but things that are sort of in the periphery, you know, at the side of your eye, so to speak. And so, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, it, generally speaking, we, we find these nutrients all throughout the body. Uh, they're doing good throughout the entire body. And, and the same can be said for the visual system, the entire visual system from bright to dark along all these performance parameters, uh, you know, from the center out to the periphery, uh, they're all improving. And that was, again, like I say, I, I didn't expect it at all. We tested a lot of healthy volunteers uh, with, uh, you know, primarily Air Force lieutenants, wide range of macular pigment level, and those with high macular pigment just did better, uh, significantly better. I have patients that come in and they're very sensitive to the light. We call it photophobia. Can we help them with these pigments as well? Yeah, absolutely. This is, uh, it's interesting, the terminology, you know, when you get in the clinic and light is bright and it bothers you a lot, we call that photophobia, you know, literally translated, it's fear of light. And so you might not be scared of the light, but it hurts. It makes you squint and, and kind of look away. And, uh, but you know, everybody, whether or not you're, you know, in the, the optometry clinic or not, bright light is hard to deal with. You know, oncoming headlights, bright headlights, a lot of the LED and xenon discharge lamps that they use for newer automobiles now, it's bright. It's bright for anybody. And it's great if you're behind those lights and you're seeing, you know, your car has them, but if they're trained on you, it's difficult. Uh, bright sunlight, we don't typically think of visual discomfort as uh, a visual performance parameter, but it really is. I mean, something that's, if it's bright and you're able to tolerate it, see through it and still, you know, perform and be able to maintain attention on, on the target, whatever you're looking at, that's a great benefit over someone who's, you know, basically, you know, disabled and has to look down or look away, you know, and it could be life and death on the highway as well. You know, you, you get kind of temporarily blinded or you have to look away. So, uh, so bright light is a major benefit. And that's, that's the one that we probably hear first after starting patients on supplementation is my 
vision in bright light is noticeably better. You know, if you forget your sunglasses for whatever reason on a bright sunny day, you can still tolerate it and, and get around just fine. So that's a, that's a major benefit. How can you tell the public how we could help their vision kind of quantify for night driving in your studies? Is, can you see things doubly as fast, uh, you know? Yeah, well, speed, speed is one thing for sure. I think that just the ability of the visual system to adapt quickly uh, to different light conditions. And, and you know, we, we think about driving at night as, well, that's one condition, that's dark. But the fact is, I mean, you think about the variety of lighting conditions that happen when you're out driving at night. You've got uh, well-lit road signs. Uh, you've got patches of where maybe you're driving down a country road and it's kind of dark. Uh, you've got oncoming headlights. You've got a diesel that's tailgating you that's, you know, got bright lights on and it's reflecting into your eyes from your rearview mirror. You know, all sorts of different conditions. And the visual system, your eyes and brain have to you know, kind of rise to meet the bright and then lower back down again uh, to, to function in the dim light. So up and down fast. The speed of that is crucial. And, uh, and by having higher levels of, of the macular pigment, you know, which is of course achieved through nutrition, uh, you know, that, that I, to quantify it in our study, yeah, twice as fast uh, is, is basically how fast you can go from light to dark which is huge. When you're talking about the difference between five seconds and two and a half seconds, uh, when you're potentially disabled and you're driving 60 or 70 miles an hour, I mean, that's huge. That's a, that's a, a massive difference. You know, as people get older, they don't absorb food as well. Uh, do you have any tips to help people absorb the supplements, to absorb the carotenoids a little bit better, whether it's, you know, if they don't absorb it, whether it's hydrochloric acid uh, uh, supplement or, digestive enzymes, what do you think? Yeah, you know, there, there are a couple of strategies that help a ton uh, with regard to these carotenoids. They're uh, lipid soluble, and that means that they, they go into fat. And I know people are thinking, well, I'm not supposed to eat a lot of fat. You don't need to eat a lot of fat, but for instance, on a, on a nice leafy green salad with you know some other colored fruits and vegetables on there, maybe you've got tomatoes, apple, whatever, uh, you want to use a little bit of fat, maybe oil and vinegar dressing, uh, maybe, you know, some kind of, some kind of fat in there. You don't need to use a stick of butter, uh, but, you know, a little bit of fat, that will help those carotenoids get absorbed through the intestinal wall. Another, another great thing, I mean, especially if you're talking about supplements, a little bit of fat, we always say take it with a meal. Uh, it's a good idea to get the meal going, uh, so you've got something in your gut, and then the supplement, uh, you wanna hold it in that small intestine for as long as you can, uh, because you know that way it can go across, it can be absorbed uh, and through the wall and then into the bloodstream. So fat is one, a little bit of fat, uh, and then try to, you know, don't take it on an empty stomach. Uh, that's that's a mistake that can well you lose seventy five percent of that supplement that doesn't isn't able to hang around uh, to be absorbed as quickly, and uh, and then you know lastly like I mentioned earlier uh, cooking if you're going to get it from vegetables cook cook the spinach you know steam your broccoli uh, break those plant cell walls down a little bit and that'll make the the nutrients more readily available. When I, when I was a kid I used to watch Superman and Superman had 
x-ray vision. You're like the x-ray vision guy. You could teach us how to make good vision even better. <laughs> so I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's my pleasure, definitely. So let's talk about infants. You're an expert on infant vision. Tell mm -hmm. us a little bit about their vision and what's in colostrum and should we all be taking colostrum? Tell us about that. Okay. Well, so, so infants, something that, you know, maybe a lot of people don't know, uh, vision and, and the brain itself actually develops largely after we're born. Uh, there's still, uh, you could argue, at least half of all of the wiring up that has to happen uh, to make vision work that occurs after we're born. In the case of premature infants, it's, it's more, of course, that needs to be taken care of. Uh, colostrum. Colostrum is the, the first milk. Uh, that a baby gets. Uh, it's, it's the first milk produced by moms after the baby's born. Uh, it's, it's referred to by, uh, you know, those in the sort of you know, neonatology, uh, pediatrics as magic milk uh, because it's got so many beneficial nutrients in it for the baby. Uh, a lot of that is immune function, um, you know, other physiological benefits can be, uh, you know, realized with the different mixtures of carbohydrates in, in the colostrum, but it is usually colored a yellow color. And that is driven almost exclusively by lutein, uh, which is one of these magical carotenoids that we've been talking about. So, you know, if mom has had a decent diet um, throughout her life, but, you know, even just more recently in pregnancy, she's going to have a rich yellow colored colostrum. And this, you know, just listening to Mother Nature, uh, the fact that the, this colostrum, this important, super important milk, this first feeding basically for an infant, uh, it, the fact that it's got lots of lutein in it, uh, that should tell you something. It's important. Uh, we know from uh, premature infant studies that uh, if you have babies, these preemies, uh, you know, at a really, really great study. There were a couple hundred of them. The moms couldn't breastfeed uh, for whatever reason. Um, they were assigned different formulas, uh, to one of two formulas, infant formulas. One of them had lutein, the other one didn't. So it's, it was kind of like your perfect little experiment. And uh, a measure of how well the retina is wired up, uh, called an electroretinogram, was done. And the infants that were given, these premature infants that were given the lutein formula, uh, you know, caught up basically to normal term infants within a matter of about four months. I mean, it's astonishing. The wiring up of the retina, uh, probably one of the most complex processes, you know, that's, that, ha that occurs in development was significantly uh, sped up by, by lutein. Uh, so that's, that's pretty impressive. The question of whether adults uh, should be taking colostrum, and I, as I understand it, it's it's popular in some segments. Uh, you know, purchasing you know colostrum, and and trying to derive the benefits. A lot of that stuff, um, I I don't think that's I think that's barking up the wrong tree for adult nutrition. A lot of benefits there, but those benefits are generally specific to the infant, the mother and the infant. So it's a, you know, kind of a. a the parameters are all balanced for that infant, um, partly, and also it's a it's an infant, uh, and so we've got a lot of these functions that have been already kind of you know calibrated. Uh, you know, our immune systems, for instance, are within the first year of life. They're sort of 
designed and uh, you know the balance of all of these you know the gut microbiome you hear so much about the healthy bacteria all of that balance is sort of set within the first really thousand days of life so to go back and to uh, try to achieve that kind of reset on on your system or improve you know any kind of immune function with colostrum I there's no evidence to support that not for adults anyway so let's talk about the pregnant woman who wants to have their baby to be the best that it could be for brain function and eye function. Should they be taking one of these pills a day? Should they be eating the vegetables and take the pill? What do you think? What, if your wife was pregnant, uh, what, would you, what would you recommend? Yeah, well, I mean, my, my wife was pregnant. We have three daughters and, uh, and you know, doing this research along the way. Uh, yeah, naturally, we had her, you know, taking supplements, uh, also eating in a, in a healthful way, you know, leafy greens, I'm trying to eat, I mean, with the exception of a little bit of morning sickness in the beginning, you know, it was, uh, you know, she had a pretty darn healthy diet, nice, rich, yellow colostrum, all of those things that you can imagine. And, uh, and I would say, again, with all of the evidence that shows that, you know, lutein, zeaxanthin getting to the baby through uh, the umbilical cord. I mean, there, there are data that show that even uh, in utero, you know, in, inside the, the mother, uh, lutein is getting to ocular structures, getting to eye structures, uh, presumably doing really good things there. All of that evidence points to, um, you know, definitely including these in your diet. And if you, if you can't, uh, eat spinach when you're pregnant, uh, for whatever reason, if it turns your stomach or, or if it's just, you know, can't stand it or whatever, uh, you can eat leafy greens, colored fruits and vegetables. You know, certainly I've recommended this to countless uh, friends. Um, I give talks to pediatrics folks, you know, take a supplement uh, and, you know, get it, get it in your system. It's consistent with, with good nutrition generally. And the more science we learn about, the better we understand, you know, the importance of you know, these nutrients in wiring up, you know, the, the retina, the brain, you're going to do a lot, your baby, a lot of good by doing that, I think. How about omega-3s? Mm -hmm. What's your Omega-3s, I mean, there's this sort of trinity of, you know, nutrients in the brain, in the eye. Uh, it's, you know, lutein, uh, DHA, uh, it's an omega-3 fatty acid, and vitamin E those three kind of work together. So, you know, I always try to qualify when I'm talking to people about this, that, you know, lutein, zeaxanthin, and mesozeaxanthin, they aren't really magic bullets, but they work with other things. Uh, and one of the most notable uh, nutrients they work with is DHA, uh, which, you know, we get primarily from uh, fatty fish. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, DHA, a lot of listeners will will know that it's related to you know improved cardiovascular health. We're learning about you know how important it is in the brain. Uh, your your brain is bathing in DHA, incredibly important. It allows the brain to function at high speeds, uh, allows for the rapid exchange of these special ions. the The trick is is if you've got a lot of DHA in an area uh, that is operating in a fast manner, like the brain or the retina. Uh, you run the risk for oxidative stress. So scientists like me now are of the mind that, well, if you've got a lot of DHA, but lower levels relatively of, say, lutein, lower levels of vitamin E, 
in those structures, you run the risk of damage, especially cumulative damage over decades of life. And that damage can manifest as, you know, Alzheimer's disease potentially, uh, Parkinson's. We know, you know, certain cancers uh, at the base of cancers is oxidative stress. And so if, if you put those nutrients in, you allow the brain and the eye to work fast, but to also, you know, quench any damage uh, along the way. And so uh, you're promoting optimal function. And I think that's the basis for a lot of these effects that we see in the lab. The brain can just go nuts. It can run super fast. The eyes can run super fast, as long as there's that protection in, in place. Uh, and you're, you know, quenching free radicals, you're reducing oxidative stress and inflammation. And, uh, and so I think it's a, you know, sort of that magic, you know, sort of feedback. You know, the body's expecting, you know, a certain template to be in place. And if there's some weak link, it's not going to work very well. Certainly one of those weak links is, uh, you know, the lack of these carotenoids. How about vitamin D3 and a B complex? Well, you know, I mean, these nutrients, uh, you know, D3, super important. And, you know, it's in the public eye. Uh, we're getting less and less exposure to sunlight. Uh, exposure to sunlight is incredibly important uh, in good measure. Uh, you know, certainly it gets a bad rap, you know, obviously skin cancer, these kinds of things. But, you know, our lifestyle is such that, you know, we're spending more time indoors on screens, uh, you know, phone, tablet, computer. And so we're not getting a lot of that ultraviolet radiation. It's important for a lot of reasons. Um, you know, obviously, I think, again, listening to Mother Nature, uh, we, you know, understand that the body makes vitamin D from sunlight. It actually uses cholesterol in the body in combination with this exposure to UV light from the sun to make vitamin D. And that's really important in terms of calcium absorption um, in the body. And so you see those with, you know, lower sunlight exposure at higher risk for osteoporosis, for instance. So, you know, just walking around outside for 15 or 20 minutes a day, you get plenty. Um, there are also connections to, uh, you know, age-related cognitive decline and a reduced amount of vitamin D. So that's important uh, to consider as well. And, and so the, the picture I like to paint involves, you know, urgent matters like, you know, leafy greens, lutein, zeaxanthin, and mesozeaxanthin. Get these things in your body. They help the eye, they help the brain, heart. That's immediate. Um, you know, still urgent, but maybe not quite as urgent, you know, vitamin D, vitamin B, these B complex vitamins that, you know, the foods that people eat, it's not as a big a variety on average than, than it used to be. Uh, certainly in the sort of going way back in the ancestral environment, you know, we kind of were forced to eat a lot of, you know, leaves. Uh, these were what are called fallback foods. You need to eat leaves, grasses, nuts, berries. Uh, you got to eat those to survive. And then occasionally maybe you get some meat, you know, you hunt an animal. And it's kind of reversed now, you know, we're eating a lot of starches and meats and on average, not, not everybody, but certainly on average and fewer of the leafy greens, you know, nuts and, and seeds and, and fruits and things like that. So the, the variety and the profile is kind of flipped. And, uh, and so those things, the body can only do so much to kind of keep up with the potential damage there. And, uh, and so most of these negative outcomes are seen kind of at the end of life. And as I'm sure you've seen in the clinic, 
Um, we, we, we'll see 85-year-olds that come in here, and they are incredible. I mean, they look like, their eyes look like, you know, the eyes of a 30-year-old. Uh, you look at the retina, you see that, the health, they're sharp as a tack. Um, uh, 10 out of 10 times you ask them, you know, um, are you a smoker? No. Okay, that's one thing for sure. Tell me about your diet. Well, they've had a consistently good diet for the, the majority of their life. Are you physically active? Yeah, they've exercised, you know, maybe not crazy marathoning their entire life, but, you know, they've, they've had physical activity, whether it be through work or, you know, just being active physically, going to the gym a half an hour, an hour a day. Um, you know, these kinds of things add up over time. And it's just a little, that little half a percent every day, you know, where you go downhill, it's hardly noticeable, but then you get, you know, to the point where it's a disease and then you say, oh man, you know, here, here we are. So, but what I'm saying is you can take steps to completely, well, if not eliminate, reduce your risk of, of going down that road. Vitamin A, uh, eye doctors almost have forgot about vitamin A. Talk about the importance of vitamin A, is it, and is it still important? Well, it is. I mean, vitamin A is fundamental. I mean, as, as you know, as an eye doctor, you know, we, we need vitamin A to synthesize the, what's called the photopigment, and these are pigment molecules in the back of the eye that catch light. And without light, uh, I, I mentioned earlier that vision is just simply the detection of light by an organ. And you know, without the ability to catch light, you don't see. And, and in malnourished uh, populations, I know, you know there is one in Tanzania in Africa that was recently characterized. They have a vitamin A deficiency, and that will manifest as uh, in bright light, they can still see okay, although it's not particularly good. But boy, once the sun goes down, they're virtually blind. Uh, and that's just completely based on the fact that they don't have enough vitamin A in their diet. Uh, here in the United States, typically we don't have to worry too much about vitamin A. We've got fortification in, in milk, breakfast cereals. Uh, we get a lot of vitamin A from the diet typically. Um, however, you know, if if there is an issue, uh, some folks with extremely rigid diets or extremely picky eaters, uh, they can manifest with a, with a night blindness. I don't know if you've ever seen it in your clinic. I haven't personally seen it, uh, but, uh, but it, it exists. So it is fundamental. I don't want to say it's nothing we you know, have to worry about. Certainly, you, you want to be concerned about that situation. But um, typically, in America, we get enough of, of vitamin A in, in the foods that we eat. Tell me about blue light. You know, there's some controversy. Is blue light really dangerous to the eye? And, you know, coming off these screens, 455, you know, looking at this blue light all the time, somebody that has macular degeneration, uh, should they be wearing filter glasses that are filtering the blue light? And is it really, is it, there is some studies that show it does kill some of the retinal cells and that it can kill retinal cells. Talk to me about that. So, you know, blue light, why, why is blue light a concern? It's, you know, you think about blue versus, um, you know, orange, red, yellow, and, and say green. The, the shorter the wavelength, the, the bluer something gets, you know, into violet, the, uh, the higher the energy that light has. And so, as you might imagine, you put highly energetic light onto a tissue like the retina, which is pretty vulnerable, uh, to, to high energy damage, it's, it's more potentially damaging. And, and so 
from a screen, if you're looking at a, at a computer screen, I tell people, you know, don't panic. I mean, they, gosh, you're not going to acutely damage anything in the retina with the blue light that's coming off of the screen. Now, that said, uh, I've, I've talked about cumulative damage over time. And they've run, you know, models, uh, and they're animal models, but they you sort of mimic what a, uh, a human being would do with sort of an eight-hour job looking at a computer screen every day for 10 years. And indeed, like you mentioned, they show that there is some damage. Uh, there, are, there, is, there are cells that uh, potentially, you know, atrophy and die. And that's a concern because the, the neurons in the retina that give rise to vision, uh, they don't regenerate. Uh, so, you know, some, some cells do in the body, largely neurons like those that are in the eye and the brain don't. So we want to hang on to as many as we, as we can. Uh, so based on those models, yeah, if you're highly active, like a lot of us are on a computer screen, on your phone, tablet, what have you, there's enough blue light coming off uh, cumulatively uh, to, to do damage to the retina. I don't think this is a huge concern for most people. And I, the reason I say that is because the sun kicks off a lot of blue light. Uh, we, we see the sun as just sort of white light or, or yellowish, uh, but there's a lot of uh, short wavelength light or blue light coming off of the sun. And just to put it in perspective, the total amount of blue light that you get from a computer screen um, in an eight hour day, so you're looking at the computer screen for say six and a half hours, which is kind of an average amount for the you know American. Uh, in about 15 minutes outside, you get that much uh, exposure, and so the eye is adapted to to handle this. It's supposed to be anyway. I mean, we have a little bit of protection from the macular pigment, quite a bit actually, if you've got enough in the back of the eye, and of course that's predicated largely on diet. Uh, you also have a, the lens in the front of the eye, right behind the clear part of your eye, uh, that will actually absorb quite a bit of this high energy light. So the eye is pretty adapted. The problem that you see with uh, computer vision syndrome, uh, as they've termed it, uh, is you know people getting headaches, neck strain, uh, eye strain, eye fatigue, and that eye, that can be brought on by blue light. So even if you see the screen, the computer screen has a nice vivid white color, how that white is made for a computer screen, for instance, is by mixing a blue with a yellow. And so, you know, your listeners will say, wait a minute, you know, blue and yellow make green. And that, that's true of paint. Uh, but for light, if you mix a blue and a yellow, you get a nice rich white, especially if that blue is a little bit stronger than the yellow. So you might see white, there's a lot of blue in there. So there's a lot of energy. What we found in studies is that when the eye is exposed to blue light, there's more squinting involved. So you, you kind of squint your eyes up a little bit more. You might not even realize you're doing it. And over time, uh, that squinting can lead to tension headaches. Uh, and, and so we've actually done a supplementation study on college students who use computers like crazy. You know, I mean, they're on social media and taking notes in class on computers nowadays. And so, you know, some of them are reporting 12, 15 hours a day in front of screens, which is alarming in its own right. But anyway, it's a perfect population to study. So we supplemented them with the three macular carotenoids, lutein, zeaxanthin, and mesozeaxanthin, and found uh, that after six months of supplementing, 
a, a, in the, it was a placebo-controlled trial, so you know some of them got a basically an inert pill, the other got the, the, the carotenoids. Uh, we found a reduction in uh, headaches, headache frequency. Uh, one per week, it went down. Uh, eye strain, eye fatigue, um, along with other visual performance improvements. But that was pretty exciting, and, and in just six months, uh, able to build up relatively low macular pigment, you build that up, reduce squinting is most likely the, the cause, and uh, you see these benefits. Fantastic. I mean, I've, I've read some studies and some things that the blue light, even out, outside in the sun, even though it has more energy, it's balanced by infrared and, and UV, and the infrared is almost like a protection. And mm -hmm. so it's different than the blue light coming off the screen because it's not balanced with infrared. Which is the which is the good guy bad guy kind of scenario? Yeah, well, I mean, I am not sure that I would uh, go with the infrared uh, explanation, but what I will say is that the sun is a heck of a lot brighter than your average computer screen, and so we know that when you throw bright light onto the eye, the pupil constricts, and that will limit the amount of light getting to the retina. Uh, you know, that, that makes your eye a little more vulnerable when you're in a situation indoors looking at a computer screen and your pupil is relatively large, you know, perhaps five or six millimeters even. Uh, and that lets in quite a bit more of that blue light. So that, that could be a concern for sure. Well, thank you for that. Uh, I want to thank Dr. Jim Stringham, uh, PhD, who is at Brown University Eye Clinic for uh, being with us today. And he's given us fantastic information. But if somebody wants to get in contact with you or learn more about the research that you're doing, how can they do that, Jim? Yeah, no, I'd be happy to field any questions. Uh, you can, and actually, I'm at Duke, actually, not Brown, but. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> Close enough. Um, anyway, uh, but you can get me at uh, james.stringham, that's a stringham, at duke.edu. Uh, feel free to email me um, and I'll, uh, you know, if you don't have the email in front of you or if it's not made available, you can look me up, but james.stringham at duke.edu and I'd be happy to answer any questions. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. You bet, Dr. Uh, really, Bill. Really kind of you. No problem. Mm -hmm.